This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're going to talk to someone who is on the shortlist to be Joe Biden's vice president. That is Congresswoman Karen Bass. She's a five-term House member from Los Angeles, and right now she's all over the national stage. She's leading the police reform movement in Congress as chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. She is on the Joe Biden-Bernie Sanders unity team that's trying to come up with policies that make Biden more appealing to progressives. And this week, George Will, yes, that longtime conservative columnist George Will, said she'd be a great vice presidential pick. Okay, so that's probably not an endorsement she'll pin to her Twitter feed, but still. The Chronicle's Washington correspondent Tal Copen and I recently chatted with Bass about all that she's into right now. And here is our conversation. Congresswoman uh, Karen Bass from your home in Los Angeles. Yes, I am. I am sheltering in place. You you are sheltering in place, <laughs> and uh, as am I in my home in Oakland. And uh, Tal Copen is doing the same in Washington D.C. Welcome to it's all political. <laughs> Thank you. So you were a young activist in Los Angeles at the time of the when LAPD officers were caught on video uh, beating Rodney King back in 1991. Well, I wasn't that young in 1991, but yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you saw attempts at police reform then. Uh, what's different now, both in terms of the movement and the attempts at reform? And, and what you learn from that experience that you channeled into your congressional well, bill? I do have to tell you that I was involved 20 years before that. So um, I started uh, getting involved in this issue in the 1970s. And um, I think there's a lot different now. And I think the main thing that's different, though, is technology that we had tried for so many years to convince the public that abuse was happening. And that was our challenge, is that people wouldn't believe us that it was happening. And so when Rodney King happened, of course, we felt that we had arrived. This was going to stop now because everybody could understand. And I think what has happened now, it, you know, it's almost um, the good side of the technology is that it's documented. The bad side is, is that you can kind of become numb to it. But I think that what happened with George Floyd was so extreme that it's led to people, you know, people just couldn't deny it this time. And then, of course, the other thing that has changed, which is so wonderful, is this uh, blossoming of this movement around the issue that starts with policing, but people have even expanded how they're looking at the issue. And that is very, very different than the past. And, you know, on that note, I mean, it, it really did seem like there was momentum building and a real chance to pass police reform legislation, but- Oh, you're talking in the past I tense. am talking in the past. I mean, realistically, it's very difficult. I am not. It is difficult, but it doesn't mean that it's not gonna happen. And I, I say that passionately because 
there are a lot of people that still would like to see this happening, happen. And uh, there's conversations going on, not negotiations. And I am not by any way, shape or form throwing in the towel. But do you really think that it was the right decision for Democrats to block consideration of the bill that was coming up in the Senate? And, and in doing so, I mean, what incentive do Republicans in the Senate have to try again now that they can blame Democrats for blocking their work? I think the incentive is, and I think this is the other thing that's really different, is that the whole debate was different this time. I mean, in the past, the debate centered around, well, I don't really think there's an issue. There's, you know, a couple of bad apples. Every profession has bad apples. And we don't really know what this person did before the camera went on. There was the denial and the rejection that there was even a problem. And that did not happen this time. My Republican colleagues, to a letter, all agreed that something terrible happened to George Floyd. Now, that might sound simple. But it's not simple because I've never seen that before. Before, people always turned to the person that was killed to try to find out what they had done to deserve to be killed. And that did not happen this time. People looked at policing. People recognized there's a problem with policing. And some of my colleagues have even taken the step to talk about systemic racism. So I just can't let you reduce it like that <laughs> uh, because this, I think this is an important moment. And, and one thing I think in general about our American culture is that uh, even when we accomplish something, sometimes it's hard for us to even recognize that something's been accomplished if you don't get 100%. Well, I mean, and I take your point, but at the same time, you know, I feel like I've covered so many of these moments, so to speak, where, you know, on gun violence prevention, where, you know, it seems like there's this this confluence of events, the protests are strong, there's agreement on a bipartisan basis, and, you know, Congress once again finds a way to punt on it. So what what do you think about this moment gives you hope that it could be different? Well, I actually just went through it. You want me to summarize it again? <laughs> Maybe I should ask me. I don't mind summarizing it again. I mean, I think what is profoundly different this time is the mass movement that I know won't be sustained forever. But, um, you know, seeing all of those tens of thousands of people out in 50 states across the country. Now, this part I think is embarrassing. You have people around the world protesting for human rights in the United States. You had 54 countries in Africa go before the United Nations appealing for human rights in the United States. I mean, you tell me when that's happened before. And I do think that that is a profound difference. And I think that that is the basis from which I am optimistic that we'll get something done. Now we don't have forever. I think we have a short window but I'm just not going to give up on that window or just say, well, you know, we didn't get it in the first two weeks. I mean, look, we put a bill together in 30 days. When does that happen? Not often. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm not, I am not willing to concede at all. Let's talk about defund the police, which you and others have said is one of the worst slogans ever, yeah, despite but, its intent. You know, I mean, I think yeah, but it's, uh, my reaction like that. Um, was a quick reaction because 
you get frustrated having to explain it over and over again. And I have the utmost solidarity with the young people, especially the young people that are out calling for something that I believe in strongly, which is for the last 35 years, our priorities have been upside down. We have decided to incarcerate public health issues. We've decided to incarcerate mental illness. We've decided to incarcerate um, poor people. And we have not invested in solving the problems. We incarcerate our problems. We arrest our problems. And 30 years ago, I started an organization to deal with exactly that because it was at the height of the crack cocaine crisis. And um, we had a thousand homicides in LA and it was a gang problem. And people in the community were like, you know, just bring in the police, take these young people away, they're monsters, blah, blah, blah. And I felt like that was horrible. And so I started an organization to try to fight against the policies that were being passed one after another. And now we're dealing with the consequences. So you have a whole new generation that is saying, we're investing all of this money in policing. Why don't we invest money in solving the problems so we don't need so many police? And so that's your vision of what defund the police means to you. What is it? What does it? What would a vision of, of a defunded police department, or whatever you want to call it? Well, again, like? I don't use that word defund. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was on a call last week and somebody said refund. And I think that is a much better slogan. <laughs> refund our communities. Instead of investing all of the money in policing, solve the problems. Let me, let me tell you about LA and your areas, your area is the same, but in LA, we have this jail downtown called Twin Towers. We say it's the nation's most expensive mental, uh, mental hospital. Why do we do that? We don't need to spend billions of dollars incarcerating people who are mentally ill. Why don't we treat their mental illness? And so um, that's why I would say refund the community. And, um, and I think mm. that, that the, the movement to defund the police have raised these larger issues of how we are investing money in our communities. And I support that. I support uh, re-envisioning what communities should do, which is one of the things that is exciting about the bill is the fact that we provide grants to communities to re-envision public safety. I want to read to you or read to everyone listening a passage uh, from from your book. Uh, the, my book? Uh, sorry, a, sorry, a book that quotes you. My mistake. In, in, the, uh, in 2011, the, the book Million Dollar Conversations about your reaction um, when the officers involved in the Rodney King beating were acquitted and um, you said you took it personally, and I'll just read it for everyone listening. Uh, you said, I was just devastated. I felt that I had not done my job. Uh, and you continued, the activists um, failed because if we had succeeded, people would not have been rioting. They would have been, they would have come together to bring about change. Obviously, the notion of looting and rioting this this time around has been very politicized. But I'm curious, how do you feel today about what we've seen in the past few weeks and the occasions that some protests have turned violent and destructive. 
I feel a little differently this time because I saw the rioting and the looting a little different. I saw it as being people who were opportunists. They were taking advantage of a situation. And uh, I also questioned whether some of it was being instigated by the other side um, intentionally. And, um, and, and then, you know, some people were just, were just angry. Uh, so I saw it as a, a little differently this time. And, and I'm not maybe, yeah, but I, but I, but that, I knew you were going to quote that. Um, <laughs> Because I did feel that way. I mean, I have devoted my entire life to these issues. Right. And I felt like we hadn't moved fast enough. We hadn't brought about enough change. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the, when, when all of that was happening in L.A., when the riots broke out, you know that we were literally in the middle of a campaign to change policing in L.A. Mm. We had a ballot initiative that we were working on. And um, the chief of police punish the community by not sending the police when the when the verdict came out he knew what was going to happen and you know where he was um when the verdicts came out he was at a fundraiser in a wealthy side of the community fighting against raising money against the ballot initiative because in la we weren't able to fire the police chief and he was horrible i mean he was the one that said that black people didn't have the right kind of veins in our neck and that's why we died in chokehold. He said that at a press conference. So, so that was part of what I meant, too. We were right in the middle of trying to change policing. <laughs> uh. And uh, now the ballot initiative passed, but I felt like we hadn't worked fast enough. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Congresswoman Karen Bass after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And now, here's more of our conversation with Congresswoman Karen Bass. I want to take a step back uh, a little bit, actually. You and I had a conversation right around the beginning of 2019 for a story I did on the Tri-Caucus, which for our listeners is the Congressional Black, Hispanic, and Asian Pacific caucuses. Um, and you and I talked about your goals for your tenure as the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, which is, you know, this term of Congress. And one of the things we discussed was your goal of making CBC members more visible as experts, uh, you know, on TV and the media, including on matters more than what are stereotypically, you know, black issues. For example, all the work the Tri Caucus does on healthcare that a lot of people don't talk about. So I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, first of all, how you feel about your progress to date, and second of all, um, your feeling on the CBC leading on police reform. Obviously, there's so much authenticity and expertise you bring to it, but do you have any concerns about sort of letting white lawmakers off the hook by allowing no, them no, to step no, behind? No, 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 not at all. And as a matter of fact, you know, um, the Tri-Caucus, and we call it the Quad Caucus now because of our two Native American sisters, but 
No, first of all, we worked together. I mean, the Black Caucus took the lead, but we worked, you know, hand in glove with the uh, Hispanic Caucus, the Asian Caucus, and the Native American women on the issue, and my white colleagues. No, I, I have been so moved and impressed by the way everyone in the Democratic Caucus stepped up, everyone. I mean, even people who were taking a risk with this vote because of their district, and they all stepped up. So no, I didn't feel like anyone was let off the hook. The speaker was incredible in terms of her leadership uh, pushing for this. No, we came together and it just, it was, it was amazing. I loved the way we came together on this. Congressman, uh, you are on many people's shortlist to be Joe Biden's vice presidential nominee. Uh, I, I've heard you say that you would be honored to take it and such. Are you being vetted as far as you know at this point? You know, any of those questions have to go to the campaign. I think you know I'm going to say that. Oh, come on. Come on. What would Hypothetically, what would you bring to the ticket? Well, let me just tell you that um, it's not a matter of bringing anything to the ticket. Let me just tell you about this moment because, you know, regardless of who is on the ticket, what we need to do in this country right now is heal this country. This country has just been torn apart for three and a half years. We've been traumatized on a daily basis, most days, multiple times in a day. 131 Americans are dead. And we have a president who hasn't even blinked. As a matter of fact, he gets angry that we don't praise him that more people didn't die. And so what I want to bring to our country at this moment in time, I don't care what role I play, is to try to bring the country together. That was the thing, by the way, that I thought was so great about the justice and policing bill, is that it really did bring people together. Republicans too. I mean, my Republican colleagues who disagreed with this, that, or the other about the bill, still came forward and talked about how important the issue was. And we weren't like tearing each other apart. And the funny thing is, and I think I might've mentioned this earlier, uh, but you know, in the hearings and all, my colleagues talked about every issue under the sun, except for the bill. The only thing they didn't bring up were Hillary's emails. I mean, we talked about Mueller, we talked about everything else. And I viewed that positively because they did not attack the bill and they didn't deny the issue. And that's a, a really big deal to me. So what I want to bring to the country right now is healing, is bringing us together, is, uh, try, is, is the healing on a medical sense in terms of attacking COVID in a strategic way. It is shameful. Countries don't even want us to come visit. You know, part of my work is in Africa, um, in Congress. I can't even go to Africa right now because the African countries don't want us there. Speaking of, of coming together, you are a member as the Economic Committee co-chair of the Bernie Sanders-Joe Biden Unity Committee. Uh, you know, the lack of coming together in 2016 is something some Democrats still blame for Hillary Clinton's defeat. And, you know, some young voters and progressives are a little bit less than enthused about Biden's candidacy so, you know, what does that unity committee need to do to get progressives and Sanders voters on board in the 2020 election? 
Well, um, hey, we need to organize. And you know what? Organizing, I mean, I know that sounds, you know, a little passe, but uh, organizing is going to be the only thing that saves us because I absolutely believe that some folks are going to do everything they can to interfere in this election. And what they're going to do is they're going to make us risk our life, which, which is insane. Uh, the fact that people have to make a choice, gee, do I expose myself to a virus or do I vote? And the idea that a strategy that Republicans have used forever, which is absentee voting, is now all of a sudden evil, uh, should say something to us. Um, and so, so organizing is what we have to do, and we have to do it together. I, I want to ask you, Carson, about something you've gotten heat from uh... Uh, that you said uh, a couple years ago about uh, Cuban leader Fidel Castro after Castro died in 2016. You respectfully referred to him in a statement of condolence as Comandante en Jefe, uh, in Spanish it means Commander-in-Chief, pardon my Spanish by the way, uh, to the listeners. Uh, critics, uh, these are including a couple of your Democratic colleagues from Florida, have, have uh, said that that offense, uh, many Cuban exiles who are there. Um, and if you were to be on the ticket, some folks said that these comments could hurt Biden in Florida, where he pulls a as a slim well, lead. Know, Do you regret saying that at you all? You know, I have for many, many years promoted the relationship between our two countries. As a matter of fact, I went to Cuba with Secretary Kerry. I also went to Cuba with, um, with uh, President Obama. And for years, I have sat on the board of the National Endowment for Democracy, which works in promoting democracy in Cuba, freedom of speech, freedom of associations. And so I talked to my colleagues from Florida and I think they understood that I was not attempting to slight anybody, um, but I was referencing, I was using the, um, you know, the Spanish for commander in chief and I will definitely take in to consideration the sensitivities of different geographic areas and also of different generations. Uh, but fighting for democracy, whether you were talking about in Cuba, fighting against um, repressive uh, regimes is something that I have done for, for many years. And I think my colleagues understand that. You know, we, t we spoke about this a little bit earlier, the racial justice demonstrations this time around have been much more multiracial uh, than some of the past yes. iterations. Yes. What advice would you have for white people who want to be good allies in this moment? You know, um, first of all, uh, I think, and this is important for all of us, as a nation, we typically don't know much about our own history. I mean, if you did a survey of your listeners, I bet you a large majority of them would not know that the period of enslavement lasted 256 years. And that for 100 years after enslavement, that laws were passed to basically re-enslave people. And then we had Jim Crow laws. And so I think that people in our country don't understand when folks use terms like institutional racism, systemic racism, what that actually means. And so I think, the most important thing white allies can do is to really deepen their understanding of U.S. history. And uh, I recommend to everybody the documentary 13, uh, because if it, that's a documentary that you can see on Netflix. And that documentary talks about the period of enslavement and how our criminal justice system was formed, 
how policing uh, was formed in the country, the fact that Brian Stevenson, and one day he should get a Nobel Peace Prize, I think, uh, talks about how slavery didn't end, it just evolved. Um, the thing that I'm so um, inspired by this new movement is that it has expanded to now talk about systemic racism. And, and I think educating yourself and, and also learning from other white people. So uh, you know what? I forget the woman's name. You guys probably know. Uh, she wrote a book called White Fragility. Um, she's a white anti-racist activist, and there are a number of white anti-racist activists. And I think educating yourself and sharing that education with other people, now that we're living in the Zoom world and we have Zoom social events, you know, how about watching that movie and having a discussion group together? I mean, there are just a number of things that I think could be done. Um, and I think that white allies wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts and going out there and protesting, sometimes white folks don't realize that um, it's so important that they talk about race and racism. And this is a sad thing to say, but it's true. Um, when white people talk about racism, you have more legitimacy than when I do. When I talk about racism, it's like, yeah, well, she's black. What do we expect her to say? When you talk about racism, it is so, number one, it makes me feel like I lose 100 pounds because I don't <laughs> have to carry the burden all myself. But two, it's the legitimacy. But is it important to share the mic to you? I mean, I, I completely get what you're saying in terms of... What do you mean share the mic? I mean, you know, on the one hand, I completely understand what you're saying in terms of helping amplify and legitimize. But at the same time, you know, is, it, is there a way and is it important to allow the voices who have been saying this all along to still shine through? You know what I mean? Don't you think we get tired of talking about this? Fair enough. <laughs> Um, I think we have time for one more quickie question. It's, it's not a quick question, but uh, a little more than a decade ago, you were leading the California Assembly during California's one of its worst budget crises before this one. Would you learn for that experience that you, you'd like to pass on now to those uh, facing this? <laughs> I learned I could survive anything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, you know, for somebody like me who's devoted their life for fighting for resources for poor communities to be put in a position where I slash education and slash healthcare. I mean, that was just, that was very traumatic. But, uh, but I fought for cuts because what was being proposed at the time was to dismantle the safety net. And I felt if we had cuts that though that the, the resources could be restored. And I'm so proud of our state legislature because they did exactly that. They restored everything we cut and went way further. So, um, you know, you just have to um, keep your head up and keep your eyes on the prize when you're going through a crisis. And I kind of feel like it's what we're going through now. I mean, we didn't have, we weren't losing, people weren't dying left and right like they are now. But we do face this profound economic crisis that I think we're going to be in for a long time because this this um, health crisis has been so severely mismanaged by the top, by the administration. Congressman Karen Bass, thank you so much for being on It's All Political. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Congresswoman Karen Bass for joining us today. 
I'd like to thank my friend Tal Copen for co-hosting with me today. That's always fun. And of course, I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. Our theme music, by the way, is Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Croson. And remember, no matter what George Will thinks of you, it's all political.